Hirsch was born in Tel Aviv in 1967. He works in London. Uh, he's a professor of photography at the University for the Creative Arts in Kent. And um, I guess essentially he's noted for his uh, rather large-scale photographs and his moving image work that often focuses on historical or political, um, if not events, at least uh, kind of uh, the aura of things that happened historically and politically. And uh, they're rather provocative, and at the same time, strangely meditative uh, works, if you take a look at them. Um, Ori's also very interested in geographical places, um, often places that have painful moments uh, associated with them. A piece that you see uh, downstairs in the Black Box series uh, called The Forest, along with another work called The, Clear the Clearing, uh, were filmed uh, in a forest in the Ukraine that was the site of mass killings of Jews uh, by the Nazis in the 1940s. So there's various uh, ramifications um, and different layers uh, involved in Ori's work. Um, he's recently done a series of flat screen works, one of which, as I mentioned, we've acquired for the collection, that often focus on um, historical or vintage uh, still life uh, type of work compositions, only that destroy themselves uh, in the midst of watching them. They're almost like paintings that have become something that's moving and, and quite tragic uh, in some way. Uh, and there's sort of interesting relationships that develop in these works, I think, between the still image, the moving image, uh, painting, technology, uh, and history. And they often recall, at least for me, sort of the, uh, the works of Harold Edgerton um, uh, at the same time. Um, Ori has been working on a recent film, I believe, uh, which is uh, about uh, Walter Benjamin and his 1940 journey through the French uh, Pyrenees, which I think he was just been shooting uh, in January on location. It must have been a little cold. And um, uh, it's about his escape from the Nazis uh, going through the Pyrenees. Uh, so join me very much in welcoming Ori Hirsch up here, who will be showing Just, can you hear me all right? It's working, the microphone. Okay. Um, I think that I would prefer to sit down, but I realize that people can't see me when I'm sitting, so maybe I'll kind of, um, I'll uh, alternate between sitting and standing. Um, so what I would like to do as a starting point is just to show the film that is hanging on this floor of the museum. And then just to have, because so, I'm, not, I'm not going to show the pieces that are in the, in the exhibition, I'm going to refer to them. Um, and I'll try to show other works that is related. So maybe this will be a good starting point. So we'll start with this and then um, roll into the, into the talk. Okay, so I would like to um, start the talk, but a short uh, introduction to um, suppose something that is maybe unified the various uh, work or some sort of a common denominator because formally and visually the work tend to swing sometime and um, taking quite um, I suppose I could say quite extreme turns and I find myself moving 
or I find the visual language kind of shifting quite a bit because I tend to work in in particular area and then get very saturated to a point where I have to kind of push it away and move move in, in kind of take a, a breathing space. I'm also becoming very concerned that there is a point where a, a point of comfort that I reach and when I I kind of start to suspect that I may get into this zone, I have to um, to to let go, but I, I feel that uh, so despite those kind of formal shift, I think that uh, what is always the issue, and somehow without thinking about it, I tend to return to is, is a certain threshold, a, a point of fragility where elements. It, it could be thematically, but it's also the method of working. Images are. Um, a, almost, I would say, a desperate attempt to hold on, and then there, a, just before the point of destruction, and it could be—I mean, it's quite obvious in this in this piece, but uh, it also kind of, I think, referred to some of the photographs that I've done, like the of um, ancient olive trees, where I um, went to Palestinian villages and photographed trees that were between 300 and 500 years old, and I went to the middle of the day where the sun in Israel, it's not just a source of light, but it has a physical, physical presence. And my attempt was to use the light that is created the image to, uh, to destroy it. So I start to um, take photographs of those trees for very, very long time. So I overexpose the film to a point where the light that create the image will start to destroy it. And when I process those films, I got black negatives with no information whatsoever. And then in, in the dark room, I made an attempt to resurrect or to somehow to um, retrieve and, and pull out the image. And then um, I think that this kind of relationship between an attempt to destroy and, and Almost to resurrect or to or a certain a, a kind of a, 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 almost a desire for an an, af, an afterlife or some sort of continuity. It's a, it's also relevant to the film The Forest that is projected at the moment in the black box, and I think that it's a it's. A, Probably it's a clear common denominator that is kind of a, I keep addressing in 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 various in various ways and. Um, Whatever I do, never escape those those tensions. Um, but today, I'm going to mainly focus on the this body of work of that is referring to old master work and and still live. Um, I would have liked to talk also about the forest and all the body of work and photographs that are related to this uh, to this work. But obviously, time is restricted, and also I imagine that your your patient. So I'll, I'll start with um, um, with these works, and one um, I think that my my kind of start, starting point uh, had to do very much with uh, thought about um, kind of a technological shift that um, I felt is uh, becoming very prominent, and I was faced with almost a, on a daily basis. I mean, from a starting point, working as a photographer, um, the, um, it, it feels for a while now that uh, we're, I'm kind of I'm in the middle of some sort of revolution and uh, major instabilities. Uh, my printers, I, three of my printers went to bankruptcy and closed the business in the last five or, or six years. Um, 
every time there is a new possibility to create images uh, very quickly, it's being substituted by something else. And, and this kind of instability, it's, um, I imagine it's very much related to what happened when photography was initially in, invented. There is a kind of almost envisaged process as, as revolution and evolution. There are periods where everything is kind of disturbed. And, and like now in, with the, kind of, with the digital, digital revolution and things are very unstable until there is a moment of saturation and then the pro, the kind of the, it starts a much more slow evolutionary process where there is a, kind of an elusive sense of, stabi of stability for a period of time. And I was um, thinking about it very much because a, a lot of um, the photographs that um, I'm making are, Obviously, photography always deals with information, but I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in something that I would maybe could define as a, some sort of surface tension. I'm always envious of, of painters that are dealing with, a, with surface and photography is lacking it. And I'm trying to always kind of an attempt almost to, to go through the emulsion, to go into a, a place that the, the images start to kind of um, resonate or, or, or um, Come, almost to reach to the materiality of, of the film and of the paper. And one of the things that is, a, is an issue is the digital revolution, that everything is becoming even more removed than ever before. If in um, traditional photography there was this interaction between um, light and the um, particle of silver, and the process was, um, or the image was created as a result of that, um, now is the kind of through the digital processes there is no the everything is kind of a, becoming removed almost to a some sort of a, a mathematical binary that are then being translated um, into an image but there is kind of it's it's even the the processes are becoming more and more removed and i wanted to develop works that on one hand is coming very close to um, to um, to painting in its in its in its appearance but in the but the process of conceiving it is as removed from painting as as can be and I'll kind of I'll get a little bit more into this but I kind of I would like to start with um, um, with a painting by um, by Goya and, and um, to compare it to a painting by, um, by Manet, the, um, the 3rd of May of um, 1808, it's um, um, and to compare this painting to um, the execution of Maximilian, which uh, I kind of see those two, these two work, uh, both of them are kind of happen at two sides of the invention of photography. So um, the painting of uh, the execution of Maximilian, was created in 1867, and um, although there are a lot many relationships between those paintings and a lot of similarities, there are some profound and fundamental differences. And um, I, I kind of believe that some of them are consequence to the in, to the invention of photography, and and maybe to do with um, the way technological development um, have um, an effect to, on the way reality can be perceived or the possibilities of, um, of reality. So in, if in the, Goya, in, in the Goya's painting, um, in the tradition of um, a, a 
the classic tradition of historical painting, they are, um, the, the entire narrative of the painting is being, um, um, is being revealed. So we see the soldiers that are um, shooting the victim, we see the victim standing and about to die, and we see already people on the floor, um, people already died and, um, and bleeding on the floor. So the entire drama is revealed. Um, unlike this, um, and the paint, this painting by Goya. In the Manet painting, there is a, a fundamental difference. And I kind of believe that uh, this difference was um, his consequence to his, um, um, to the fact that he was living in the age where photography was already invented, although photography was unable to deal with many of the, to fulfill many of its promises at the time, those promises were already um, um, we're already in the air, and what is uh, you know so I think so so significant about the Monet paintings that he's photographing a moment of suspense. So what we see here is uh, we don't see the death; we see the moment just before. We see this suspended moment between life and death, where the bullets are in the air. We see the smoke from the gun barrel, but we don't see any victims on the floor. This is a painting of a bullet that is leaving the barrel. It's about these moments that, um, that, is, that is almost incomprehensible and it's become visible through, um, um, through uh, this particular painting. I think that there is also this uh, significant difference between the two moments. Um, allegedly, Goya was, was there and the painting that he did um, was based on his personal experiences where Manet was never at the, at the scene in Mexico and he was influenced by what happened uh, through photographs that he saw. And this is the, the shirt that Maximilian wore and he kind of he managed to get images of um, evidential images and based his painting on them. So there is, to an extent, there is a, the kind of the, the um, um, a difference that once again, the, the process of photography allowing reality, allowing or kind of bringing close a sense of reality at the same time, the painter was far, um, far removed from the actual event, but was able to, um, to, to imagine it through photographic evidences. And um, I think that it's also interesting to look at this painting in comparison to um, a photograph that was taken by uh, Roger Fenton just ar around the same time, about uh, 10 years earlier before um, Manet did his painting. And this is a photograph that he took of the Crimean, from the Crimean War. He was the official um, British photographer during this war. And um, there were various issues because uh, this is photographs that they uh, called them um, Valley, Valley of, um, of Shadow of Death. And um, there were some taboos, so dead bodies were not allowed. This was a kind of part of a, a royal campaign to persuade public opinion for the war because um, there were some, um, um, some issues back home and the Phantom went to create this um, some sort of um, persuasion or com um, campaign that will uh, legitimate some of the events. Um, so dead bodies were not allowed, but what for me is most kind of in interesting about this image is that um, because the photographic processes were so slow at the time and long exposure were 
required, it was impossible for him to take any photograph of real action. So in this photograph, um, apparently the cannonball was spread uh, in the landscape, and it's a photograph that is allowing us to imagine what the war is, and the title is kind of putting it in some context, but we don't see the event. And Manet, 10 years later, is able to photograph a bullet suspended in the air, but photography, which is a kind of a photographic promise, although photography itself didn't have the technological means at the time to deliver those moments. So for photography, there was this gap between um, what it will be, or aim it, or uh, dreaming toward, and the actuality. And um, I want to move from this to a photograph that was taken by Robert Capa in 1936, a famous photograph from the Spanish Civil War. And earlier, before that, the 35 millimeter camera was invented and the photographic processes were much um, faster, this allowed him to, photograph, uh, to take a photograph of this, this moment that is even maybe pushing the, some of the proposition of the Manet painting a step further. What we see here is somebody that is neither alive nor dead. It's almost uh, like the uh, Strodinger idea of uh, in quantum physics of the live cat and the dead cat. We see somebody that is simultaneously alive and dead. We are kind of faced face with a moment that uh, um, um, of, of, of an inconsolable paradox where somebody is uh, simultaneously at um, existing at both, at both sides of this, of this threshold. And it doesn't matter that uh, there are evidence, evidences arrive later that uh, this, this, this is not a true moment and it was fabricated and people find the contact sheet and see the soldier standing and then lying on the floor. I, so, I don't think, because once again, it's about what the, the, photo, the, um, the, the photographic t technology um, allow us to um, to imagine, and, and actually, the, the, uh, I suppose there will always be this gap between uh, objective reality, which obviously um, no one can, no medium, and uh, can can deliver. I mean, probably such thing does does not uh, really exist. But it's about this possibility: the camera that is mobile, the film become much faster. So all of a sudden, we are faced with this same. Um, this moment, and uh, Walter Benjamin wrote about this, um, some of the ideas that uh, new, the, the kind of the evolution and the new invention um, and improvement of photography deliver in his, in his essay, A Small History of Photography, where he talked about um, a phenomena of optical unconsciousness. And um, he was claiming that through technological development, um, photography will create or a new technology will create something that is kind of similar to psychoanalysis where if somebody is walking up the stairs um, each one of all the steps are being absorbed by the movement and there is no significance to any of them but if we start to take a photograph of one uh, of one single moment we isolate it and all of a sudden we kind of bring it out of this unconscious movement or our photograph can actually blow up a detail and all of a sudden more, a detail that was incomprehensible becoming very visible to us and we can start to, uh, to think or conceive and the same to do with the speed or looking at the stars and so on. And so I, 
I think that the, the, the series of images that I start to work with were relating to those kind of tension points and then I'm not sure exactly, I mean, I, I can talk re retrospectively why I chose the Cotan painting, but it's not, um, but it would be more truthful to say that it just came to my mind. And I was thinking about, I mean, I don't know how the whole thing kind of came together, but I was thinking about a, a tension point between um, Juan Cotan, um, still life painting from 1602 of a, a queen's a cabbage melon cucumber. Um, I suppose I live with this painting for a long time, so it's a, you know, these things that are kind of popping into consciousness and then uh, somehow drifting away. And the photograph of Edgerton of a bullet that going through the apple, a photograph that he created in MIT's in the 50s. And I was interested in the tension between those two because Cotan was um, attempting to reach this um, static equilibrium of composition that is hanging in perfect balance. And he was following this um, kind of a Pythagorean idea of um, the parabolic shape that is um, almost is, um, set in contrast to the window of the monastery where he was uh, creating all or the later part of um, his, um, his paintings. So the movie, he was a successful painter in Toledo and then he, he gave up his practice as a professional painter and moved to the monastery, he was working as a monk. And from this point onward, all the paintings were created using his window frame as, um, as some sort of stage and creating this tension almost between, between culture and nature, between the organic shapes of the composition and the hard geometries of, um, of the window ledge. And I mean, they, although they are establishing this static, perfect balance of a static moment, there is also the kind of movement and transition in those paintings that I find um, kind of a very, very attractive and interesting. And it's the shift in scale and also of shape moving from a round, round um, quince and ending up in a very elongated cucumber and this deformation or, um, of, um, of perspective that is going through the painting. And in relation to that, there is the painting of Edgerton that is a kind of doing almost the extreme. If, if Cotan is reaching this static equilibrium, Edgerton is fixing a moment that is happening in such a speed that is incomprehensible, um, or at least was incomprehensible to somebody like Cotan. It's only new technologies that make this, uh, this moment possible. And um, so, the first work that I was doing, uh, that I did in this series, was very much about the tension between those two extreme points, and um, and that's how the, um, the the film of the pomegranate kind of emerged. I'm not going to show the film now. I assume that some of you, most of you, saw it downstairs here. Um, so there is a bullet that is penetrating. The pomegranate. I kind of took some liberty and I changed some elements in the composition and I brought the pomegranate instead of the queens and also the positioning of the pomegranate. It was, it ended up being in the, 
more central because they, what happens when the bullet penetrates the, pom the pomegranate? The pomegranate is kind of pushed into this pendular movement, which um, was important to contain within the frame and was also important for me to achieve because it's almost emulating the composition of cotton. So once again, through these um, high-velocity bullets that's running through the pomegranate, um, there is this almost hypnotic pendular move that is once again echoing what where the original painting was uh, coming from. And I, I tried to kind of pull, I mean, this whole work is about this kind of pulling the tension between, um, between um, an old master and new technology. So, so it was very important for me that the final results will be, it will create a suspension of disbelief, it will be as close as possible to, will, will create this, uh, this illusion, will pull a viewer to kind of, um, almost believe in, the, in, in a surface, although there is no. And it was important in this respect to, to create the images in such a way that um, they are shot digitally, that uh, there is no film involved at all, so they shot directly to an hard drive. Um, so there is no, I never had any kind of material, they don't have any material present in any stage of the process. But when it came to presentation, I wanted to kind of refetishize them as, as objects, I ended up making those screens with the frames around them. And um, it was also important that um, um, the detail about, um, uh, about the work was CNC'd into these frames. So there is a kind of, a, there is a, a, a physicality to the all, um, to, um, to the final, um, I would say the final object or the film. And I'll just um, show you, so this is the set that we, created for, um, for the making of this film. Um, we built, um, I had to create, a, I was not allowed to shoot uh, with a gun in the studio, so we, we built this um, kind of a machine that is creating, it's like an air compressor, uh, that we put a bullet in the barrel and we were able to measure it. Um, on the other side there is this um, a clay bags that are preventing the bullet from ricocheting because it's a big issue. We, we had to shoot with very large light um, and they get very, very hot. So we had to kind of um, take a measure to prevent any, um, any crashes or, or accident. And then after this uh, series of work, I. Uh, sorry, after this single work, I, this, I moved on to um, a, a film that uh, I just showed earlier on, the, the Big Bang, the film of the exploding flowers, that um, was, um, I mean, the starting point was for me, a three painting at the National Gallery in London, and also some sort of a fascination with the tulip rush that uh, brought to the collapse of the of the Dutch economy um, in the 17th century. And, and this was led by kind of a speculative market where tulip became most desirable and people led to buy the bulbs before they were able to see the flowers. And as a result, the prices of the bulbs ex escalated to such an extreme. And then there was a, it was a bubble that kind of burst and um, the entire Dutch economy collapsed as a result of that. And around this time, painting, the paintings of, of the flowers were much cheaper than the flowers themselves. So it could have been, I think, that the difference was 
something between 300 guilders for a painting, and it could have been 3,000 guilders for a very good bulb. Um, and I was looking at three paintings um, that, um, like I said, they placed at the National Gallery. There is the, this painting by Beauchamp and um, Van der Rast, and this painting by, um, by Heisem. Um, I'm not sure if my pronunciation is, um, is correct. And what, in all of them, I took elements from the three paintings and I tried to kind of create some sort of amalgamation. So the, the composition of the, of the arrangement for this film is not relating, it's not a, um, taking much more liberties than um, the Cotan painting. There is no particular uh, reference, but uh, it was very important to kind of to follow um, some elements, so it's a very elongated composition where um, the, and also to source the particular flowers that existed in the painting, which were um, sometimes difficult because obviously those uh, paintings um, were, uh, some of the flowers sourced from very different seasons, so, and because we were shooting in a, um, a particular moment in time, uh, there were some, some flowers that were almost impossible um, to um, to source out and um, um, anyway, so I kind of um, I think that what what, what started to interest me and uh, it was beyond because uh, I was I was working on those uh, on those films and I was thinking that in the the film are kind of showing these um, um, those linear trans transitions. But there is something about still photography that is uh, fixing time or causing time to fold on itself that um, were from, was, was lacking from, from the film. So I wanted to create a series of still photographs that will try to capture the, this tension point between, um, I would say, the, the kind of the, the moment of the suspend moment before destruction or the moment of destruction itself. And then um, I, um, I was thinking um, the, the philosopher Ephraim Lessing in the, in the 18th century wrote um, kind of an acclaimed essay um, called The Lacoon. And he was talking about a moment, he, he kind of uh, defined it as a, a pregnant moment. And this is before the invention of, uh, of photography. And he talks about, he kind of takes this, this painting of Rembrandt as a, an example. It's a... Abraham's sacrifice, and it's from 1635, and he, he talks about a moment where um, the, the climax is at its peak, but the event didn't take place yet. If um, the knife already will cut through the throat, then it will be um, a kind of a, a grotesque moment and very dramatic, but the moment where the knife is in the air, it's a moment of suspense where the viewer can, can imagine, but what's most important for him was he kind of he didn't think about the, the, this, the pregnant moment as a, as, a, as, a, as a tension point in the narrative, but as an aesthetic moment. So the, if, the, if blood was coming out of the throat, this grotesque moment wouldn't, aesthetically will become more problematic, and there is much, the composition is much richer in this moment of suspense just before the event is taking place. And 
in a strange way, this is connected to what uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson was defining as the decisive moment um, years later, where he was claiming to hold on the camera and just to wait for the perfect moment and not to shoot before and not to shoot after, but just to wait and capture this moment where the event is uh, happening. And then there is one point in composition where all the, ten, the, all the elements of the, um, um, all the elements are just reaching a tension point, and this tension point is a peak that is, is unique. You can, if you fall slightly before or, or after this, then the photograph won't hold uh, its ground. So, so he was kind of hoping to, uh, to, to, to achieve this moment. And once again, I come to these moments in between, just the peak of an event, when an event is just about to reach its climate, and there is this moment of suspense before it happens. And, I kind of want to move to another photograph. Um, and this is a photograph that was taken by Alexander Gardner of a, a guy called Louis Pine. I mean, he was a member of a gang that was trying to uh, murder one of the ministers at the uh, Lincoln government. Um, I think that it's 1865 when this photograph was taken. And Alexander Gardner was, uh, got the permission to photograph the members of the gang just before they were uh, executed, they were about to be hanged. And I think that today probably it would be impossible to photograph moments like, whoop, moments like this because um, there is so much awareness to intrusion, what camera can do and privacy and all the rest of it. But I think there was a level of innocence there that uh, the um, photographer was able to approach the, um, um, the um, Um, the, the person that is about to be executed and, um, and take a photograph. And I think what is so powerful about this photograph, and Ronald Barth is uh, talking about it in, uh, in his book in Camera Lasuda, who is, uh, is claiming that what we're looking here, it's at a very, it's a very unique moment. It is actually unique for all photographs. We're seeing, we're seeing a person that is just about to die but we're seeing him when he's still alive. And there is something about the gaze in his eyes that he's kind of looking beyond the camera and somehow almost become indifferent to the presence of the camera. So it's kind of invite us to get into a certain psychological state of mind of this person. And he defined this as a, as a unique quality of all photographs. He said that all photographs are holding this, this kind of fame tension of a moment that uh, he, he called as this, this has been and this will be. So we see something that is already property of the past, but we just see it before it's, before it's happening. And there is this um, um, kind of a very strange tension that, um, you know, kind of leading to talk about uh, the tragedies that uh, is part of all, of all photographs. And even we can take this moment further because this person was just about to be executed is the only um, kind of living evidence it, due to the photography is still alive here and we're looking at him being alive where all the people that were involved in the event, all the executioners are all dead now. So there, th th this kind of elusive um, quality of the photograph, the way it kind of pull and fold time on itself. And this kind of thought about how photography is, um, is, res is resisting time or is kind of folding time on itself was already explored by um, um, kind of the, the, the inventor of um, 
uh, of the medium. And this is a photograph that was taken by Degas, you know, in, in I think it was 1838, so it's a year before photography was officially invented. And, um, and these are two photographs that he took outside of his studio at different times of the day. And he was fascinated, he kept repeating this about how through how photography can present the same scene at different times. Um, this kind of ability of a moment, again, to, or of time to collapse upon itself. And this is something that's interesting in, the, in those photographs, and particularly working with high speed, I realized that um, in some of these images, and these are, this is a, small, a series of small pictures that were titled Time After Time, that was, um, were done consequence to the film that I showed you before. Um, I kind of realized that it's possible to capture a moment. Once again, there is an ex the flowers are exploding, but a moment that is holding the tension. So unlike the, the pregnant moment that was suggested by Lessing or even the decisive moment by Cartier-Bresson, in those photographs, what I feel is happening, we see the collapse, but at the same time, the image is still holding together. So in this image, you see the energy of the explosion that is pushing through the flowers, but because it happened at such extraordinary speed, the flowers still holding together. So it's the two, the two it's rather than being in the tension point, we see the event itself, but we see it simultaneously. So the moment of destruction and of somehow um, the, to the togetherness is still um, uh, being coincided. Um, so it's a few photographs that are kind of touching upon those, uh, this tension point. I'll show a few, few images from the series. And these images were very small, they were about 30 by 40 centimeters, and they kind of uh, related in size to um, the original paintings that I was referring when I started to work on this, um, uh, on this series. Um, in 2007, I, um, CLG Gallery did a, a solo show at the armory of these uh, images. So, I mean, you can see how small they are, and we painted the walls of, um, of the booth in um, dark gray color and trying to kind of create a space that is uh, slightly removed from, um, um, from the atmosphere of the, um, um, uh, of the fair and creating a, a kind of a, an ambience that is much closer to, um, to um, tr kind of a, a traditional museum space, maybe. Um, so after I was working on these images, I was thinking that it would be that it would be interesting to try to take these moments and enlarge them because I was I, I came across those uh, cameras, Hasselblad cameras, that um, have this tremendous attention to details, a digital camera, but once again, through the eye um, recording quality, it's possible to create images that will be so large that I imagine that if I'll be able to capture this moment, but um, with such great attention to detail, that will allow the viewer to kind of look, look at them at, at those moments, but um, to penetrate the image beyond the ability of the naked eye to, um, to conceive to conceive them, it will be uh, something 
interesting because originally a lot of these paintings are quite small in scale. And I was also thinking about this shattering moment where there is an enormous number of particles that are being blown, in, blown into the air. And photography is very, uh, as a medium, is very proud of its ability to record instantaneously almost infinite number of details. And I was part of me always open to um, to defeat photography, to create an image that will have so much information that the camera will, will collapse on it, that the camera won't be able to deal with it. So I was thinking that if I'll be able to work with cameras that is phenomenal in its ability to capture detail, but create a situation that the images has, the, there is so much of it, um, it may be a situation where, once again, the camera won't be able to cope. I always hope, part of me always hopes that the whole thing kind of will, will fall apart, but I'm doing every possible effort just to manage to hold it and, get, and keep it together. And uh, so, anyway, I'll get into this in a minute, but for these uh, images, I was uh, referring to paintings by uh, Henri Fontaine Latour. And um, I mean, the choice, it was almost, it's kind of, it's partly intuitive, but there was a period of, that he was making paintings that were, um, the palette was always relating to the, to the French tree colors, and I kind of, uh, somehow it captured my attention, so I started to look at his painting, and particularly this palette, and the arrangement are much rounder, which I, I kind of, I thought, suit some of the, um, the, the kind of the working method that I was after, because I wanted to create such explosions that will be so dense in details in the center. Um, and I'll show you, okay. So um, I try to work, on, this is the process of how we made these, uh, these images. And the idea was that to work with, the, um, with, the Assel, with those Hasselblad cameras. And because they are very slow, but they are fantastic in recording details, I decided to work with, um, or I, luckily I got the opportunity to work with 10 cameras together. And um, because the rotation of those cameras is one frame per second, and we needed to work it. I mean, I wanted to reach, unlike the small flower photographs, I wanted to freeze the movement completely. So I tried to find a way to photograph it in the region of 7,000 uh, 7, of a second. So what we did is we took 10 cameras and um, created a, an electronic device that triggered the cameras to fire at 400 of a second one from another. So the 10 cameras will fire almost simultaneously with the hopes that one of them will capture something. And then in order to, um, to get the whole thing, the production becoming quite expensive, so I have to economize the, um, the way we are, the, the way I kind of work on the, um, on the shoot itself. So a lot of the time is going to preparation, actually the, the shoots tend to be usually um, a, sing, a single day. And um, also in order to make the flower brittle enough, what I do is I freeze them with liquid nitrogen. Um, but before doing the freezing, all the um, explosive devices had to be weaved in the flower. So first the arrangement is created and it's being placed on the table. And then the explosive devices are being weaved into the so you see the pyrotechnic guys are putting the devices. And then there is a, a hole at the back of the table and all the wires, because with the film, it's a real issue how to avoid the wires. And I, rather than to do it in post-production, I try to resolve the whole thing in the shoot itself. With, movie, with still images, 
there is always the possibility of Photoshop, but I try to avoid thinking about what can be done later, but try to actually make the event as, um, as the word really is a dangerous one, but uh, I would use it now as, a, as, as real as possible. So all the wires are being pulled through all in the back of the table, and then there is a bungee cord that's attached to those wires, with also with explosive device, and the idea is that uh, when the all the explosives are going, uh, this bungee cord will explode and will pull, because it's tension, will pull all the wires out of the frame. So this is a box, a polystyrene box on a pulley system. It's coming down after the explosive devices are put in. And then liquid nitrogen is uh, being sprayed into the box. And then here it's the process without the box. And then the box open on two sides, because obviously there are the explosives, so everything had to be um, very delicate. And it pulled out, and then I can work on triggering the camera and simultaneously as triggering the camera, it's also triggering the explosive devices and hopefully something will, um, will be caught. And what we do, I think, and when I get the day, then one arrangement is being created after another. So I can keep on working because, um, like I said, uh, there is a real production issue. Because it works with the Hasselblad, I get immediately everything onto the computer, so I was able, because a lot of the work will be how to compose the explosive in the next one in order to kind of get some of the qualities, because so it's almost become, on the day, it's becoming um, this kind of a explo a explosive composition of how many and where to place them and how to work around them. So these are some of the, the images. Now, these photographs say, Due to the large quality, the attempt was to blow them as big as, big as possible in order to kind of make those. First, this, um, the extraordinary sharpness with the great attention to detail. So to create an experience that is becoming um, hyper real in, in its detail saturation, like I say, and uh, sharpness. So the scale was crucial for this. And also as a tension point in, in relation to the original painting work, which were quite modest in, in size. So these were blown to about eight foot by six foot. And um, they have no grain. You know, it's a, it's a very different experience to the way a photograph is working. I, I made the, some, um, this is a detail of the photographs that you saw before. So the um, butterflies and, and the flowers are kind of the becoming almost, I mean, I, I wouldn't use the word abstract, but when you come very close, then everything starts to disintegrate and a lot of details start to reveal themselves. So this is the detail for the image you just saw before. This is another photograph from this uh, group of images. And this is a detail, um, a detail part of it. And because the, everything is frozen, it becomes very brittle. So it's actually the whole thing shatters rather than um, break to pieces. And then when I was working on these images, say, I had some some kind of thing, accidents where the flashes, it also created, I forgot to say that there are flash guns because they create the, the speed. The speed is not in the camera, it's actually in the, the light that is firing while the shutter of the camera is open. And I have some that the shutter didn't work and I start to, when we were working and shooting, I start to realize that something for me interesting is happening because I get these images that um, are almost completely dark. There is, um, in opposite to the long exposures that I was doing when I described the olive trees, all of a sudden there are images here that don't receive enough light, and the digital camera is unable to work with them. And um, there was a lot of noise on these photographs because um, 
the lack of light. And when I realized this, I started to kind of create some images like this. And the idea was that later in post-production, I would try to save them. So those images, um, they are monochromatic because of the, the lack of light and there is much more movement in them because the flashes are not firing. They are almost unworkable. They then stri strips that were running across them in such a frequency, it was very difficult to do anything with them. So what they have to create later is they to cre in Photoshop is to create masks that are countering those lines and placed on top of those lines. So we were able to kind of almost to create a, ne a negative mask for those lines and cancel them out and save the images. And this kind of process of losing the image and trying to save it is, um, like I mentioned earlier on, it's, um, it's reoccurring in, in the process. Um, so here are some images of uh, this large photograph installed. And then I moved on to the last kind of group of work in this series, which was based on a, on a Chardin painting. And I suppose to, the, it kind of, it felt to me that in the balance of, um, of these images, this can, the, to work with them, um, in still life with a, with a, um, with a, a living, um, living creature was crucial. It also kind of brought back this, I felt this a very reduced and um, modest um, tensions that existed in, um, in, the, in the Cotan painting. And I started to work on this, on this idea that it will be, um, rather than the, the, the explosion or, or the bullet, there will be a certain tension that once again the, pain, the photograph, the film will move between, um, um, between two static points. Actually, I'm thinking that rather than to talk about it, maybe I should show this film and then I'll talk about it. It will maybe be more interesting. So. This was my starting point, which was very literal. And then I moved from it. I also made some still photographs. And, and then I moved to a, f a composition that was relying on a pheasant and grapes, which uh, in terms of um, a culinary, I mean, I started with a duck and orange, and then moved to the pheasants and the grapes, which have kind of um, the, uh, related internal logic. Um, and I'll, um, I'll just, I think I'll show you the film and then. So um, this, I think uh, the starting point for me in this film was uh, to create two, two moments, two points of balance that um, um, compositional balance. And though in between, there will be a moment of um, and there, will, there will be this kind of a almost apocalyptic event, but it will almost be sandwiched and forgotten between those two two moments. And I wanted these two moments to reach um, kind of um, to be uh, to be visually to be completed. So the composition is just is just right. So the absence of the bird at the end is a. Uh, is, is not apparent. I mean, it's related to kind of some of the footage probably from the film of the forest where when some of the trees disappear, very quickly the gap is being filled in. And 
there is no trace of a tree ever been ever, ever, ever been there. So this is the uh, the other point, and um, I made some still photographs. And what I kind of uh, what attracted me in, in, in these images is this moment where um, there is some traces on the back on the back wall that suggest some sort of event, but um, it's very difficult to. Um, to decipher the event. There is an, an evidence of some sort of a dramatic event, but um, it's almost being completely erased from, uh, from the surface. And um, the kind of, it's quite obvious that the process, the whole process of this film, there is this kind of a, almost a narcissistic element of, a, um, of, of the bird, of an image that is collapsing upon itself and being um, kind of a swallow, s swallowed up by by itself, and I think that when I when I was working on this, and it's something that happened through those films. When I worked on pomegranate, the, there is a static cameras that just recording the event, and there is no, um, I would say, a, kind of a cinematic intervention. When I worked on the piece with the flowers, then there is an intervention where I shot it with two cameras, and there is one in cut introduced between a close-up and a. a and the kind of establishing shot. And when I worked on this film, there is much more elaborated um, editing process. And what I was hoping to do is to start with a, a long shot that establishing, but to move closer and closer in in the process. So to kind of almost make a transition into a space that is a completely psychological. I was imagining that looking at the long shot, looking at the painting and just blinking, and there is another space and opening the eyes, and there we are back into the original space. So out and I was hoping to do it through process of edit to move, to be able to kind of a move um, kind of crush in and then pull out again. And I think that also the work on the sound in this became a lot more complicated. I mean, the sound in all of this film, um, it's an invented sound. So none of it is recorded on location. It's all created late in, in a later part of the process. And um, in the process of the falling bird, it's becoming the most elaborated one because I suppose that there are something like 20 very different layers that are creating the ambience. Some of it is sound that I, that um, most of it is, is archival and found sound. Some of it is sound that I just recorded when we were shooting in this um, um, metal, metal shed and the, um, there was a, the echo and the resonance of the, um, of the metallic structure was a very interesting, I felt, because it's, it, it somehow captured the sound. It, it made me feel as if it's becoming a, much more of an internal sound. And I wanted to create a tension between um, sound that is responding to the event that's happening outside, but also sound that is um, evocative of a, a space that is much more psychological, so it's very contained, a, a space that cannot be, that it's impossible to escape from. This is another still from um, this series of images that can, again, the process of the, the, the images is just kind of collapsing upon itself. And when I talked about this kind of photographic phenomena of a capturing time or folding time, I kind of feel that some of these aspects are being explored in a, in a different way than they did it in the series of the exploding flowers. And I think that this is my last image, so I'll stop it here. And if anyone...
if you have any questions, and I'm happy to take them. If somebody, uh, shall I take them, or somebody wants to? I can take them. Okay. Yes. to explosions, um, the, well, especially in the light of um, the royal court a couple of days ago presenting a uh, play called um, Six Israeli Children, the um, Carol Churchills. Sorry, the, the last Especially sentence. in the light, uh, well, it's better. <laughs> I just figured it out, I guess. Um, especially in the light of the royal court and other places in London um, producing plays that are clearly in favor of the Palestinian cause. Do you find it difficult as an Israeli artist to produce work that specifically refers to explosions? Um, um, and how was it received? Well, the answer is no. And um, I'm, not a, I'm not a national or a nationalistic artist. I'm making work that is kind of a, for me, is a evocative of, inevitably, of my autobiographical experiences. Um, my work is, um, is not taking a particular political position. I'm interested in, in other issues. It has this, obviously, it's got these references. Um, I mean, if it freaks anyone, it freaks myself. I, I picked these sounds of the, um, for the exploding flowers, there was this sound of sirens that um, I brought from Israel from a, from a, um, a sound archive. And in a strange way, it was like, uh, the sound, I went to Israel to pick them about a week before the Lebanon war started. And when I came back to London, the war started and those sounds were, you could just go to the street and, and collect them as, as much as required. But I was um, I, we were doing some work on the sound and um, the guys at the work, the sound designer I'm working with, he emailed me the sound back and I was, uh, it's quite a big file, so I was downloading it on my computer upstairs with all my speakers. And uh, I went downstairs to have dinner and when the computer finished downloading, um, it started to play the sound. And I heard sirens and I forgot all about it. And immediately I remember, you know, I knew what this sound meant. So, I freaked out. I thought something serious is going on. So I ran to the front door and I opened the door and I didn't see anyone. And I was uh, running to the back room and then I, I called my wife and I said, you know, you know. And then she figured out that it was from upstairs and I went and I realized that it was just, you know, so. Um, but apart from this, no. It's very strange. I, I did a show at uh, Tate Britain in 2002 at uh, the Art Now space. And um, and then I saw on the internet there was a, a campaign, a, a pro-Palestinian campaign that they kind of a, was a, for a, boycotting me because I'm an Israeli artist and I, you know, I find it ludicrous. I don't, I, no, I, so the answer is, is no. Um, the work is dealing with, with issues to do with, uh, with I imagine yes, there, there is, Violent element in the work, in the work and the references, but um, no problem. Yes. May I ask you what's the significance for you in using food in your art? Um, 
I can't, I don't know if, uh, uh, I can't, uh, I can't answer, I don't know. I don't, um, um, no, I don't, I, I know I attracted to particular paintings, but um, I can't, uh, sorry, I can't comment on the food. The camera is doing what the camera can do. I mean, there are issues with some of these cameras and the high speeds that um, they shot on a very, a very high quality, which was most important because of um, um, the appearance that I'm after, that it will be, um, if you see the screens for the films here, I kind of took screen, I, um, the screens that have an extraordinary resolution, so there is no, um, there is no pixelation. Even when you come close, you can't see the fabric of the screen. So, because I wanted to create an illusion of, of a real surface, as, as um, an illusion, but to establish distension, so the viewer kind of take time to, to orientate in relation to it. Anyway, for this camera to um, to capture so much information, there is so much uh, time that it can record. So um, this film was shot at uh, 1,600 frames per second. And um, when I shot the film of the pomegranate, the maximum was about four seconds. So the shots are, f you know, that's all I was able to, to get. And now I can get about eight or nine seconds. So I'm thinking about it in the, in the preparation. Um, the film with the bird, for example, I wanted to reach a point of equilibrium where everything is kind of freezing again, and it's impossible because the ripples keep on going for more and more. So I shoot it in various ways. So I shoot a plate at the end where it's all static, you know, like wait for 20 minutes and clearing the oil and the water. And so then I, I kind of worked a bit more in the edit. Um, so there are certain limitations that I kind of have to sometimes um, Consider and find visual solutions. Yes. Yes. And uh, I wish I was, I was able to wait for the trees to fall. But it's uh, it same. Um, no, they were they were done for us. Um, it's actually done in a in a reservation, they, we got um, the Ukrainian government got, it was quite complicated, but it's uh, the British Council um, seek permission from the Ukrainian government and um, there were all trees that were supposed to be cut, and they were marked, but the process was much slower and it was accelerated for us. It's in a region, they, they cut, you know, maybe two or three in a year and then they pull them with horses and, and we did about 14 in five days or, or something like that. Thank you, Ori. Appreciate it very much.
I wanted to invite everyone. We're actually going to have a little coffee afterwards if you'd like to stay. And I think Ori's going to stay a little while longer. But also we have the ambassador of Israel here, um, Salai Meridor, who would like to just say um, a few words if I can invite him up here. I greatly appreciate him being here. Thanks for your patience. Thank you, Ori. Uh, thank you, the Hirshhorn. Thank you all for uh, waiting for so long to hear me. Uh, it is uh, for us uh, a very important and happy moment. Usually, uh, we can share with Americans uh, the nature of Israel through the lenses of the camera, of the television. Uh, sometimes it's about sharing our values of having to be the home of the brave, to be the land of the free. Sometimes it's a moral dilemma where we have to abide by the principle of sanctity of life. Sometimes they need to take the lives of others to protect the lives of our own people. It is our pursuit of peace. But it's, uh, going back to the last question, uh, very much political, if you want. Um, and uh, through Ori's lenses, I think we've given the opportunity to share Israel's uh, creativity, uh, Israel's innovation, Israel's love of art, and the belief of uh, freedom of expression uh, through art. Uh, last, uh, uh, I would just say that, that uh, Israel has never followed uh, the Roman uh, suggestion of uh, uh, accepting that when the cannons or the rockets are firing, uh, the muses should uh, keep silent. And we've always uh, taken the position that uh, even when we have to deal with cannons and with rockets, we'll continue to have the muses uh, inspire our lives. I will uh, tonight uh, uh, abide by a variation of that. And I will abide by the principle that when artists present, diplomats should keep quiet. Thank you. Yeah.